We've talked a lot in this series about <clears throat> how Solomon keeps in mind the lenses of the world that he's looking through. And we, I've tried to talk a lot about um, trying to get into a biblical lens, trying to get into the Kohelet's lens. How, how does he see things in order for me to be able to bring them forward nearly 4,000 years and see them um, the way we're supposed to? And I thought of this um, as we sung our hymn uh, that uh, the lenses that we look at the world through. We certainly praise and worship from the standpoint of our lenses. It really depends on what's going on with our life. And I think it shows sometimes in the songs that we pick to sing, you know, to worship. Depending on the lens that I have on how well it may be going here, I may sing, this is my father's world. If things are going well, if I have my health, if I have my wealth, if I have my family, I don't mind singing this is my father's world. But when things begin to go bad with this world, then all of a sudden I switch to this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. I have to confess to you that I'm a little nervous about the lens in which uh, this next passage in Ecclesiastes took me because of uh, although I'm, I'm, I'm sure of where to go, um, it is difficult to hear some of the things that I think we need to come to conclusion today. So I just wanted to let you know that if it feels a little uneasy when you hear it, it was just as uneasy for me to say it. We move on to Ecclesiastes chapter nine. And it's a reflection chapter. He has spoken for quite a while about what it means to be vexed and living this vanity of vanities all under the sun. This house of mourning, this place that he has gotten us to look with a particular lens as to um, how to uh, assess day to day what's going on, assess day to day on how I worship God and how I see. Chapter nine is a reflection, again, kind of a conclusion to all the reflections that he's come to. Remember what he, what he says about what goes on under the sun. Is there any redeeming value to him of what goes on under the sun? None, absolutely none. And this reflection and conclusion will lead him, uh, lead maybe us today to have to agree with him, to understand. Um, I, just, just aside real quick, I, I love where this book has taken us to learn about God. Because I think that the more that we learn about ourselves, the more that we understand then what God has seen us, how he has seen us in order to reach out and touch us. For somebody who, uh, who is all powerful and, and all creator of the universe, he certainly seems very concerned with what goes on with you and me and what is happening under the sun. And I think that that's what has been most appealing to me about the Kohelet's trip, if you will, taking us through the book of Ecclesiastes. So chapter nine begins this way. He says, all this I laid to heart. Again, all the conclusions that he came to in chapter eight. I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, one does not know. Everything that confronts them is vanity. Since the same fate comes to how many? Same fate comes to all, 
to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to those who sacrifice, those who do not sacrifice. As for the good, so are the sinners, those who swear like those who shun an oath. All, no matter what, who we are, are in whose hands? Are in the hands of God. It sounds a little bit pious, you know, to hear it in his ears, it may sound a little pious to just kind of go, well, we're all in God's hands, you know. Or even more, I'm certainly in God's hands. I don't know about you. But I don't think it's piety at all. It's an expressed sense of fatalism that he has about what it means to be living under the sun. Even the wise and the righteous, he says, don't get to control their own destinies, do they? Wise, righteous, doesn't matter. Buys them nothing. All of our righteous acts and all of our righteousness buys us nothing when it comes to our destiny. We get the same destiny as who? As the unrighteous. The rain falls on everyone, he says. It buys them nothing. We don't get to control our own destinies. And note, it doesn't stop at just wise and righteous or love or hate, but it applies to good and evil, clean and unclean, sacrificers versus non-sacrificers, good versus sinners, those who take oaths and those who don't. So he divides the line right there as to whether or not you're a believer. Believers and unbelievers also still have what? The same fate. Being a believer in God Almighty does not get us a ticket from the fate that, bef- that is, falls on us all. What does it not get us a ticket from? What is the fate that is waiting for us all? Death. Death. See, he spent a lot of the book to get here talking about this very thing, talking about how life under the sun does not discriminate Either righteous, uh, righteous uh, people suffer, sinners thrive. He says, I, 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 see, I see righteous people being treated like sinners, and I see sinners being treated like righteous people. All is vanity. What is this vexation going on under the sun? And he's not happy with it. He's expressed it before, he expresses it again. This is an evil in all that happens under the sun, that the same fate comes to everyone. Moreover, the hearts of all are full of evil. Madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to where? They go to the dead. He says it shouldn't be this way. Notice how he puts it though. He says evil hearts should not get the same fate. They should not get the same fate. He actually is griping that they get to go to the dead as well as the righteous. And this is where it might get a little uncomfortable is trying to understand and see death the way Solomon sees death. This verse, it just seems like he's rooting for those whose hearts are full of evil. He's not rooting for them to get the same fate. He doesn't want them to get death. Interesting, huh? How does our Kohelet feel about being dead? Well, but whoever is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. Okay, 
First of all, remember that in his day, all dogs were scavengers, not pets. There was no such thing as a pet dog. So get your pet out of your mind and look at a scavenger. All dogs were despised. So he's saying it's better to be a despised dog than a dead lion. Okay, so maybe it's my bad. Maybe he does say it's better to be alive. What is it that the hope that the living scavenger has that the dead lion does not? Listen to how he puts it. If I can get it. The living know that they will what? That they will die. But the dead know nothing. They have no more reward. Even the memory of them is lost. Wait, what? The best thing about being alive is knowing that we will what? That we will die. But the dead, they know how much? Nothing. They already have what sounds like a reward to the Kohelet. See, you spend eight chapters bemoaning living under the sun and what happens and what doesn't happen, what should happen, what he thinks he could make happen. He couldn't make it happen as king. He can't make it happen as teacher. He was the most powerful man, most wise man in all the world and I could not do one thing about it, about this vexation living under the sun. So you know what? You know the reward that is waiting us all? He sees death as a what? As a reward for living under the sun. See, he begins with their memory. The dead, their memory, of course, is gone. How many memories do the dead have? They've got none. And then, and then it moves out because he says there, and you can take that possessive to us because the longer that somebody's away from us in the sleep of death, what happens to their memory? It gets a little thinner, it gets a little thinner. The concept of memory in Hebrew is very, very interesting. All you need in Solomon's day, and probably if you look all throughout Hebrew scriptures, all you need is memory. All you need is just one person to remember you. See, if nobody remembers that, you're exist, that you even existed after you're gone, you could ask the question, did I even really exist? If our memory dies, what happens? We truly die. Memory is very, very interesting. All it takes to have eternal life is that God would remember us. Master, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He wasn't asking for eternal life. He wasn't asking for anything. He just wanted somebody to remember him. See, because as he hung on that cross, he was cursed. At that moment, right at that moment when they hung him on the cross, the rabbi of his home synagogue was erasing him from the rolls. His parents were practicing to never, ever speak his name again. Why? Because he's cursed by God. He just wanted somebody to remember him. And what he knew of that, of that uh, country rabbi from Galilee hanging beside him was that he seemed to be somebody who might remember him when it came time. <laughs> Jesus said, of course I'll remember you and rejoice. 
for today, the kingdom is yours. So everything disappears when they die. Indeed, their love, their hate, their zeal have already what? Have already perished, it goes with them. They no longer have a share in all that is done under the sun. Their love, their hate, everything that stems from these two extremes, all of the conflict, all of the pain, everything that happened from every human emotion that ever happened is all gone. The word for zealot here, for being zealous, is the same word for jealousy. How much damage, psychological, emotional, sometimes even physical, is done because one person gets jealous? They no longer have a share in what is done under the sun. And for the Kohelet, that's a reward. That's a good thing. Not having to mess with that anymore. The Kohelet has made it clear, death is a reward for all the toil that has happened under the sun. Your personal toil, the toil that has happened uh, with everybody that you've known, the toil that's happened anywhere outside, the blessing is, memory of that is gone. The blessing is, the pain of that is gone. There's only one rest from the toil under the sun, according to the Kohelet. So I can feel it getting uneasy. We don't have a share. That's what he's concluded. This is what we get for sharing and what goes on under the sun. They get something who the, those who go on living don't get. We don't get what? We don't get rest. We don't get peace. Our toil still continues. And now that we've lost a loved one, it's even worse. So he said the only blessing that you can have because of this continuous cycle is knowing one day you'll die too. I thought it would get easier to talk about. It hasn't. I still have this anxiety and you guys aren't helping. You feel just as anxious. I'm getting that. I'm getting that. Death is better compared to the vanity that comes from toiling under the sun. Under the sun offers nothing more. The blessing that the living have, the only blessing that the living have, I'll repeat it one more time, is that they know that they're gonna what? They know that they're gonna die. Now, if we know that, if we conclude that, if we understand that, do we have to be afraid of it? Every year, every year they do a poll. What are the things that most Americans fear the most? Death is usually up there in the top three. Sometimes it isn't number one, but it's usually in the top three. It never usually drops below three. Death in public speaking. I don't fear either. But I know it's going to happen. Just because it's inevitable doesn't mean what? doesn't mean it's gonna happen. Just because it's inevitable also, we can change our lenses on how we look at it. Can you imagine, can you imagine right now, just, just, just try to imagine, could you put Solomon's glasses on right now and agree with him? Do you think, could you look at death the way that he sees death? Would you look at death as a reward 
for all the toil that we have under the sun. It's hard because we've never been taught to look at it that way. Death is something to shun. It's something to run from. It's something to avoid. It's something to try to take control of to make sure it doesn't happen. And Solomon's already told us there's been a bunch of people that have tried to not make it happen. On the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is it. It's in everyone's cards. If it's the fate that awaits everyone, then why fear it? Why fear it? And I'm not saying, I'm not talking about death, fearing death as a believer in Christ. Solomon's not talking about the second death. By the way, uh, I'll get to it in just a minute, but by the time that Solomon writes this, there probably is not any sort of conception in his mind of a second death or resurrection. The complete formulation biblically of a resurrection and an afterlife, if you want to call it that, I hate calling it that. There's no such thing as an afterlife in the Bible. I'll get to that too. But, but the conception doesn't belong to Solomon. For him and his contemporaries living in the time that they did, they didn't understand anything beyond death. The shield, the grave is it. And I think one of the things that makes it difficult for us to understand what he's talking about is that we assume that he knows what God has in mind for him. We assume that he knows that, that God is going to you know, do what he did for us. Well, he, he's a thousand years almost before Jesus. How's he supposed to conceive of that? You with me? And I'm not saying that we have to turn off our mindset about our belief in Christ and what he will do for us and how he has conquered death, but I'm saying that I believe we can be blessed as long as we're living under the sun if we think a bit more about death the way the Kohelet does. Because we are believers in Christ. How many here are believers in Christ? How many here uh, hold uh, completely um, their entire hope in his death and resurrection for our life? But does that buy us away from death? No. In fact, most of us in here are going to be on the layaway plan for eternity. Amen? So that's why I think that these words have value. That, that, that Solomon is writing from a point to where he doesn't understand anything beyond afterlife. All he's observed it was what goes on under the sun, and he says, compared to what goes on under the sun, death is a reward. Death is welcome. I would prefer that. And if our belief in Christ is not going to buy us away from the first death, then maybe we'd be, maybe we'd be better off embracing it because of what could happen to us. See, that's the context of these verses. These verses, then, again, uh, is the context. Go, then, he says, eat your bread with what? Eat your bread with an enjoyment. Drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has long ago approved what you do. Let your garments always be white. Do not let be oil uh, don't, lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that are given you under the sun. And listen to the way that he even describes a happy life. It's what? It's vain. 
He goes, even if you're enjoying yourself, it's vain. So since you know it's vain, then enjoy yourself. Your portion in life, your toil at which you toil under the sun. This isn't about him giving us, the Bible giving us permission to, uh, to sin, to be licentious, to, to be reckless, to, to, to just party all night. He's, he's, this is not it. That's not what he's saying. Remember what he said before? If you could be satisfied with your lot in life, if fear of death or nothing else is driving you, then you can't be manipulated by uh, fear of death. You can't even be manipulated by a ruler who wants to rule over you. If you're satisfied with what is, if, if we are satisfied with where we are in Christ, with where we are in God as believers, what can anybody do to us? Right? See, to me, and that's what's amazing is he's saying this 700 years before the Messiah even comes. At the end of the book, and you know, we'll get there because it begins, chapter 12 begins that way. He's decided he's gonna put it all in the hands of God. And he has no earthly indication that God is gonna do any better with him than what he thinks he deserves. But he says, all I know is that it's better than under the sun. See, he's seen what the fear of death can do. It leaves humans vulnerable to all kinds of irrationality and manipulation. By, uh, by kings, like we discussed last week, um, by churches, by, by other believers who want to control you? How did the church figure out how to control people? Back, back when the church was, uh, back when um, the, the, the false church, the church of the beast versus the church of the lamb, what was the, one of the things that it figured out how to control people is to get them to fear what? To fear death. See, even in this place of mourning, we've been given a portion, he says. Enjoy it. Whatever your hand finds to do with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge and wisdom, where? And she'll you, work and work hard because there is no work where you're going. Even that buys you what? Nothing. To be good at what you do, to enjoy what you do, it buys you what? Nothing. Work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol, that's where you're going. There's nothing you can change when you get there. How hard you worked. So, so he says you might as well what? Might as well work and enjoy it. Whatever you do, enjoy it. Whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. Paul will add to that. Rabbi Akiva, one of the Talmudic rabbis, once said, when you get to face your maker, the maker will look at you and say, how come you wanted to be like King David and you didn't just want to be Moshe the shoemaker? I created you to be Moshe the shoemaker. Why did you think that you had to be David in order to please me? Whatever you do, do it. Just another way that no one then can manipulate you with the fear of anything. So again, I told you I'd get to this point. 
We forget that we don't quite realize that he writes this uncompromising insistence on death as a realm of utter extinction because there is no fully formed doctrine of an afterlife when he writes it. The concept is, is scant at best. It's not going to come till the end of what we call the biblical period. The intertestamental period after Malachi ends, the 250 some odd years between uh, the end of the captivity and up to the diaspora and the times that Jesus comes, that the New Testament picks it up, fully formed doctrine doesn't come until that time. And one of the reasons, maybe not the only reason, is that one of the reasons is that the Greeks have already had their influence and the Greeks had plenty to say about the underworld and death and afterlife, didn't they? It doesn't get fully formed until then. The Romans to some extent. See, we have the blessing of looking at the first death through the eyes of Jesus. And the only way, the only place that the idea of death and life and resurrection becomes fully formed is that the doctrine had to show up and grow legs and walk and talk among us. This is how we know our doctrine of the afterlife nearly a thousand years before Solomon could even imagine it. What did Solomon have? Solomon had 6,000, 8,000 years of history, depending on, on time. And, and, and uh, what, what, does, what did the Hebrew scriptures teach you about death and resurrection? Job refers to it. There's this one kind of cryptic message, for I know that my redeemer lives, and that at the last he will stand on the earth, and after my skin has thus been destroyed in my flesh, I'll see God. See, now I see that passage, I look at it, and I say, well, uh, he's talking about the resurrection. And the reason that I can say that is that I'm looking at him through Jesus' eyes. But what would anybody else look at? Just that one verse? It's not exactly clear. Resurrections themselves? I tried, I tried to look. The problem with doing a word search looking for resurrection in, the, in uh, the Hebrew scriptures, in what we used to call the Old Testament, is that they don't use that word. They just say, uh, to life again. And I, I can't search it. I can't look at it. So, so forgive me if you uh, can think of more, but I can only think of three. Job says it's going to happen. That's, he says, first one I can think of, who was resurrected after he died and went to heaven? Moses. So Moses was resurrected. Uh, no details on it though, right? Nobody was there. Nobody knows how it happened. Just a book that he wrote has it in there that he was resurrected after dying on Mount Nebo. Elijah and Elisha both have a resurrection on their record. As a matter of fact, Elisha has one more after he died. Somebody threw a body on his bones and guess what? The body came back to life again. Way to go, Elisha. But that's it. That's all Solomon would have to go on. Is that enough in his mind to have a fully formed doctrine of possibilities beyond death? Apparently not. And I'm glad that it didn't because he gets us to look at death through new eyes. I think we should be looking at death through Solomon's eyes. I think we should look at it as the blessing that God made it to be. See, Jesus comes in to bring his power to address all this. He has three personal resurrections, 
Three personal ones, right? Jairus' daughter, the son of the widow at Nain, and his friend Lazarus. And also, by the way, he's got some dead resurrections too. After he dies on the cross, the tombs are opened, it says, and on his resurrection, there were dozens of people that came back to life. He went up one on Elisha. Elisha did one, Jesus does dozens. He changed the permanence of death, but he didn't change death, did he? Something we don't discuss, even though we have reminders all around us, is that he has the power and has always had the power to create life, to recreate life, to do something about death, but he does not change Solomon's conclusion about death. It still comes for even who? Those who've even been resurrected. It says for those people that were resurrected after the crucifixion and his resurrection, Matthew calls them saints. So the saints, even after being resurrected, still, according to the Kohelet, now have to live under the sun again. They no longer have the blessing of their death. Now, I don't know what kind of life they had. I'm not sure. We don't know. That's all we know about it. Jesus offered them resurrection, but death is still waiting for them even after their resurrection. They could have gone to heaven. I don't know. Doesn't sound like it. Moses is the only one that we know was resurrected and went where? And went to heaven. The blessing of death still comes for everyone. Maybe why Ecclesiastes is a book not readily read and proclaimed every Sabbath. Because Solomon has a limited perspective, but this perspective I have found valuable. I found valuable because I live in a house of mourning. We started this whole series talking about the house of mourning. We're up to 64 now, by the way. We have one more since before I started. I've got to find something to hold on to. And if I could at least find what, what the Kohelet, if I could at least find what Solomon felt to hold on to about death, then maybe life under the sun might be just a little bit easier. See, we read Revelation 21 and what do we hear? We read Revelation 21 and it says, he will wipe every what? Every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. And for the, why? Because the first thing, first uh, things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne says, behold, I'm making all things new. I know this will be uncomfortable, but I want you to look at that list and say, don't the death have that reward already? No tears, no mourning. Even the concept of their own death is gone because they don't even have the concept of death. So no death, no tears, no mourning, no pain. The blessing that's waiting for us on the other side of death, people who are dead already have. 
See, I knew you wouldn't amen that. You'd have made me feel so much better if you did. But it's uncomfortable to think about, isn't it? They already have it. No more tears, no more mourning. Isn't it just what the Kohelet said? The living know that they will die, but the dead know what? They know nothing which includes that last list. No mourning, no pain, no suffering. They have nothing but what? Peace, rest. Even the memory of them is lost. Their love, their hate, their zeal. Kohelet is saying the same thing the revelator is. He's using different language and he's speaking from another place in time through a different set of lenses, but it doesn't make it any less true, does it? The Kohelet, who had little knowledge, had no knowledge of what will happen in Revelation 21, said that the dead experience exactly what the resurrected will experience in Revelation 21. Revelation 21 is there for you and I to be assured that even though we come to life again, there is nothing from under the sun that's waiting for us anymore. But the dead still get what? They still get their blessing. We look to the mercy of God in our pain and immediately cite the resurrection and the giving of life to anyone who believe as the sure sign of his mercy. We look to the future as a sure sign of his mercy when actually all we have to do is look around us and know that death is just as sure a sign of his mercy. When people die, they receive God's blessing, his promise of rest. No more tears, no more anything. Doesn't matter what they did, doesn't matter who they were, they receive his what? His mercy. The death itself is just as much a sign as a hope in the resurrection. And actually the death, forgive the way this sounds, the death actually does us more good here because it was something that we all experienced, that we all saw, that we all feel as we try to live and continue under the sun without those who have left us. I'd only had a few funerals, just a handful, before I had to do this gentleman's. It was a tough one for a few reasons. One, I was very young and inexperienced. The other was, He really didn't like me. He never did. And I suppose I gave him reason. Although, of course, I don't know what it is. His wife did, though. His wife really did. His wife's a fascinating story. I'll tell you another story about her sometime. But the the really main reason why that I felt so uh, uncomfortable and trepidatious about doing his funeral was I only knew him through this horrific suffering and pain. Type one diabetic, every complication you could think of. Here he was in his 70s, not able to walk anymore. I never saw him walk and he could barely see. He probably was actually completely blind and in pain 
just horrific pain. He'd come to church and, and his wife would park him in the aisle in, in, in the wheelchair and you'd just see him squirm just looking for some sort of relief and he just couldn't find it. After he passed away, we, uh, she decided they were gonna do two uh, memorials and they were gonna do one in our town first and then they were gonna go back to their hometown in his home church and do one there, the, the church that he grew up in. So they decided we would have church and then they'd go, everybody would go to a potluck and then they'd come back for the memorial. And what happened to me was that just before church, I had come in and they had done a collage of pictures of his life and they had put it in the room where we uh, waited in order to come onto the platform. And I sat there and I look at those pictures and my goodness, it hit me. I realized he was so much more than his pain and suffering. And unfortunately, when, when, when you come along in somebody's life after they're already that far along, you don't get to experience it as a pastor. I don't, you didn't, you, you know, you, you, you don't get to. That's, that's all I knew of him. There was, before he died, I left it out, but there was a, one time, their, their house, they lived right behind, just down this little slope from where Nellie worked. And I, I took Nellie her lunch one day and I came back out and when I looked down the slope, he was sitting in his wheelchair. His wife had parked him outside and he was just sitting in the sun. So I decided to go down and talk to him. And we just sat there and talked and it probably was the best conversation that we had ever had. It was very uncomfortable. You could tell he was, you could tell I was. We wanted to talk about anything and everything except that, you know, how we really felt about each other. But I heard this beautiful story that he grew up around Tuskegee and, and uh, the connections between old Adventist family and George Washington Carver, and it was, it, it was just great. It was great. I got that one moment with him. But when they, when they left, I decided I wasn't gonna go to lunch because I looked at my notes as to what I was gonna say uh, during the memorial, and I just couldn't say what I was gonna say. I didn't see any hope in it. I didn't see anything in it that I was gonna be able to do for her, and I wanted so badly to comfort her and our family. Because it hit me, I'd realized when I look at the pictures of his life that this is what she was mourning and that she had had nothing but 15 years, 20 years of taking care of him the way that I knew him. So I just sat in the office for about the hour that, that we were waiting, I was waiting for everybody to come back and I just paced and I said, I don't know, I don't know what I wanna say, I don't wanna do, I want her to feel the mercy of God and there it was right there in her grief, the one thing that I could tell her that might bring her comfort is that he was dead. And no, I didn't stand up during memorial and say, I'm glad he's dead. What I said was, he has the reward that is promised us all. No more suffering. No more tears. Death as much as a sign of his mercy and his love, and that's what I came across that day. And I'll never forget when afterwards when she came up to me, she, she knew that I almost had come that close to have to say that out loud. And she looked at me and she goes, I'm not 100% yet, but I think I liked it. Jesus hears about Lazarus' illness and he knows, what he's gonna ha he knows what's gonna happen. He purposely stays two more days so that when he gets there, it's been four days. 
Even the legends say that the spirit somehow hovers around the body for three. After three, it's completely gone. You know why? You know how they know that the spirit is completely gone? Because at four days, the body begins to what? It begins to rot. It begins to stink. As a matter of fact, when he says, roll away the stone, Martha says, no, there'll be a what? He needed to make sure that everybody knew that this was death. This wasn't just waking up a comatose patient. The disciples even unwittingly come to the right conclusions as Jesus tells them and conflates sleep with death. They say even he'll wake up again if he sleeps. Lazarus knows no different, by the way. Lazarus actually has been experiencing God's peace and mercy for four days. And one day that Jesus just stands in front of that tomb and, he, and when he calls out, I used to fixate on the name, I used to fixate that he calls his name, Lazarus come forth or Lazarus come out. And, and, and I thought about it and today, I, I understand that, that it was audible, that he had to hear it, but also, if he says something, it means he had to exhale. So when the breath hits Lazarus, it's just as if the breath hit him on the day he was born. The Holy Spirit, or the breath from God, and the body, when that comes together, life. And he appears at the entrance to the tomb. So he's resurrected. For what? For what? What kind of life did Lazarus have after he was resurrected? The only indication, the only time that he's mentioned after this, in the narrative at least, it says when the great crowd of the Jews learned that he was there, they came not only because of Jesus, but they also wanted to see who? They wanted to see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. So the chief priest planned to do what? to kill him. Jesus resurrected him simply to be hunted, to be killed. The Kohelet says, death is a blessing that should not be discounted. Lazarus was Jesus' friend. He brings him back under the sun and immediately there isn't anything more waiting for him than what had happened before. His illness may not have been there waiting for him, but a looming execution is waiting for him. So let me ask you, where was he better off? So again, the point for the Kohelet's conclusion is for us. How in the world does a church claiming to believe in the way, the resurrection, and the life end up being the one that perpetuates the great heresy that there really isn't any death? Hell as a sign of the mercy of God? How did that happen? I'm not naive. I know the power that everlasting torment can bring. I know how effective it can be. But it, could it be that the Kohelet's only cure to this heresy is to, for us to be able to teach death for what it is? 
See, the only way that I can fight a heresy like everlasting burning hell or the torment of everlasting burning hell is to say, no, we die. I can't fight that with the resurrection, the way, and the life because they already claim they know the resurrection, the way, and the life. This is what they did with it. And, and, and yeah, I understand. I, I, I know that, uh, that the connection, the connection, the lie is, surely you will not die. So I... I, I I don't forgive it, but I understand the beast coming up with something like that. The resurrection doesn't dissuade this teaching. The wicked, but they say that the wicked don't get the same as the righteous. They don't get death. What do they get? They get something extra. They get eternal torment as punishment for their wickedness. No question or thought that you have to be alive in order to experience it. Which means that teaching says that you can have life outside of Christ. And the basic fundamental tenet of Christianity is that life exists nowhere outside of Christ. The only way to combat that is to say, no, we die. And guess what? It's a blessing. Especially a blessing if you compare it to everlasting torment, right? Give me a choice. I want to be dead. Everyone alive, no matter who they are, gets death. Even believers get death's rest and mercy. When they get resurrected, they'll know again. The kingdom will be those who choose to receive the gift of life uh, even before they receive the gift of death. But we all know and realize that he preserved it through free will of that choosing. What makes us in the image of God is that we have free will. One thing that we know that, that we can count on him for is that if we're in the kingdom experiencing life after the blessing of death, that we're there because he didn't coerce us, he didn't uh, make us fear. We're not there because we're scared of hell. We're certainly not there because we're scared of death. No fear, no coercion. All simply because I love God and I trust him. So first we have to dispel the made up torment of death, which really isn't death, we have to do that. Then we're left with death, actual death, which is described as a blessing. <laughs> the, way that I, the way that I see it is that it doesn't matter who they were, any person is created in the image of God, the, wick, the, the wicked, the righteous, any of them are created in the image of God and it doesn't matter what they did, he actually tucks them in. I've used that illustration hundreds of times. I used it with my friend's funeral that I told you about. God lovingly tucked him in. So there's just one thing that I wanna share. And this isn't easy, but I want life to be just a little bit easier on you. How many here have children who are no longer believers. 
A lot of us do, right? I remember in the 90s, a book was written. The book was, keep your mansions, God, save my children. I don't know why that always bothered me because back then I didn't have it fully formed as I do today, but it bothers me to try to tell God to do something about someone else's free will. And I wanted to ask the author of this book at one time, would you really want your child to be uh, with you even though you knew that he was coerced into doing it? Would you want your child to be there who didn't choose God? None of us would, would we? And that's just a, I don't know, Nellie and I have guilt. We have guilt about the way that we raised them, what we taught them about God, and all of that. And it's okay to have that. We work through it. But I have to tell you that God never told me that, that any of my kids or anyone else would be lost because of what we did or didn't do. I just remember my son when he, he felt he needed to tell me. He felt he needed to tell me that he had made this decision I always admire him for that. He just, I don't know, there was something about that day. And, and was I disappointed? Uh, yes, I, yeah, I was disappointed. And, and, and I thought, well, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll learn to, to, to deal with it. And a million things go through your head when you realize that, you know, they've made this decision and, and, and what am I gonna do? And, and I looked and, and, and he uh, was, was stressed. He even had tears in his eyes and he, because he knew he hurt me. He, he felt that he hurt me and he felt that he hurt Nellie. And he goes, I'm sorry. I know that you raised me to believe. And that's what hit me, it just caught me at that moment. And I know that this was of God because I never even dreamed or thought about this before. I said, no man, we didn't raise you to believe. We raised you to someday make a choice. And you're making that choice. Which is what ultimately God wants us all to do. And if this choice leads to this separation, I don't have anything to fear about his death because he's not being tormented somewhere. He won't be tormented somewhere. He's not, he doesn't feel, he will have the same quiet rest that I had before I was resurrected. I'm not trying to tell you how you feel about your children who have wandered away. But the same man that wrote this also said, you know, raise up a child in the way he should go and when he's old, he won't forget it. Doesn't mean, doesn't mean that they're definitely gonna be saved. What it means is they'll have the information they need to make the decision. And that he guarantees us, that he, he guarantees us that even within the grave, David said this, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, what? You are there. I don't know. Maybe if we help people to understand this doctrine and quit calling it the state of the dead and start talking about the peace of his presence, 
This doesn't mean that they'll be conscious and aware of his presence. What this means is their memory will be his. Their memory will be protected. Even if I got to the point to where I couldn't remember them anymore, he promises he will. Would would there, could there be a time in the kingdom when we could just go to the Father and say, I'm missing so-and-so, and and I kind of forgotten what their voice sounds like. I kind of forgotten what life was like. Can you help me with that? Wouldn't the Father sit down and just share it with you? Because he remembers. He gave them the blessing of death as a sign of his remembrance. David said that he never forgets, that his presence is always there. Like I said, I don't mean to try and tell you how you have to feel or how you have to pray for your children. Keep praying for your children. Keep praying for our, our, our loved ones. Keep praying for our friends who we feel uh, need, need to know God. But please, please, don't ask God to save them Ask how we can become better presence of love and grace so that they have everything they need when it comes time to make a decision. And they may decide not to. And if they don't, although I'd be disappointed, although uh, I, I might even be offended, I know that they're still loved by God. Because one day they'll be laid in a grave with no more tears, no more dying. And if you think about it, (laughs) isn't that the only way, the only way that a God of love would treat a fallen world? Okay. I know it wasn't easy. Thank you for holding on with me. Thank you for the extra time. I just want it to be a little more hopeful as we navigate through this house of mourning. And uh, I'm thankful for the words of the Kohelet today. Happy Sabbath, everybody.